Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Hi, everybody. And before we get going with today's podcast, I just want to make a quick request of everybody who's listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, the greatest form of podcast currency comes in three different denominations. One is please go in and if you think it's worthy, take your thumb and just hit five-star review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps a lot with the visibility of the podcast and helps people discover us. The second denomination is if you could leave just a quick sentence or two review about what you think of the podcast, hopefully it's positive. That is the second denomination. And then the third denomination is to subscribe as well. And if you do all of those three things, if you spend $5, $10, and a $20 bill there, you have really helped us out in a way that costs you nothing, but helps us immensely. So with no further ado, here is Jessica and Aaron and the rest of the podcast on this episode. Jessica, hi. It's another episode of Off the Wall Podcast. So exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And this is a topic that I'm really excited that we have Aaron on today to talk about because it's something I feel like I've heard from clients. I've heard it in the news. My own parents are asking me about it. It feels like a very of the moment topic and one that I personally would love to learn more about. So I'm really excited that we have Aaron on today. Aaron Hay, our portfolio manager here at Monument, who joined us for a previous episode. So hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back on. Great. We're going to talk about something super exciting today, bonds. What? Wait, bonds? Yes. What is, what is a bond, Dave? <laughs> right. Nobody talks about bonds anymore, right? Everybody wants to talk about cryptocurrency and NFTs, but no way, not Monument. We are here with our unfiltered, straightforward advice on bonds. Heck yeah. Nice. Well, just really quick, guys, since you want to talk about bonds, let's do a little trivia on what the size of various capital markets is. So I just want to compare and contrast the stock and bond markets. So do you guys have any indication, any guess, just rough, what the total market cap of the global stock market is? Any guesses there? There's no way I'm going on the record with a guess <laughs> to make me look stupid with all seven of our listeners, Aaron. There's just no way. <laughs> Jessica, come on. You got to give a guess. Uh, I don't know. Hundred trillion. I don't know. You know what? You actually might be. You're in the ballpark. There's not a great beat on this. the The data is. It's a little hard to get the exact figure for this. But I'm going off of a World Bank stat, and it says as of twelve thirty one nineteen, the market cap of all stocks worldwide was approximately seventy point seven five trillion. So yeah, I was going right to guess seventy point eight. That's what I was going to guess. But I'm going to guess that's actually probably closer to what Jessica guessed was, um, today. Yeah. Because obviously that's right before COVID and what's happened with the markets post-COVID and post-election. Okay. But we're not here to talk about stocks. No, no. we're here to talk about bonds. bonds. We're here to talk about bonds. What do you guess the size of the bond market is? 
Dave. Half that. All right, Jessica. Similar, maybe a little less. Well, you guys are both wrong. We've got a little more updated statistic here. This is from the International Capital Market Association, and this is August 2020. ICMA estimates the total size of the global bond market to be $128.3 trillion. Like I said, twice that. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, I've heard stats thrown around much, much, much larger than that, but we won't get into the details. The point is the bond market is multiples bigger than the stock market, yet no one really seems to talk about bonds or honestly understand bonds from a conceptual understanding, conceptual level. So I think it's it's a good idea to at least level set and just talk about them, what they are, what they're used for. And Dave, I think you have some talking points, some stuff we can just discuss starting really baseline, what clients are asking us, what prospects ask us, and just more in general, like what bonds are. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. I'm going to pull the card of being the only one on this podcast right now who does not have a CFA. So I'm going to insist that we kind of start from 101 level because it's sometimes where I feel like I'm coming at. Well, let's back up, Jessica. I would say anything CFAs are doing run the opposite direction because nothing in the CFA curriculum prepared us for anything in 2020 and 2021. There was no GameStop or Dogecoin. (laughs) sections in CFA content, but we'll do our best. (laughs) All right. So Dave, how do you explain a bond? I always like to think of a bond as a very simple IOU. So Jessica, I'll just use you as an example. So let's just say that I want to borrow $10,000 from you. So I come to you and I say, hey, Jessica, I'm looking to borrow $10,000. And you say, great, I've got $10,000 and I'll lend it to you, but you have to agree to pay me back And I want the money back in five years. And in exchange for lending you the $10,000, you have to agree to pay me 3% interest a year. And you have to agree to give me the $10,000 back at the five-year anniversary. And I say, okay. So an IOU is exactly what it sounds like. I owe you $10,000. And I write that on a piece of paper. I say, I owe you $10,000. And I will pay you 3% a year on each anniversary. And on the fifth year anniversary, not only will I give you the 3% interest, but I'll also give you your $10,000 back. That's just an IOU, right? So you take that and you put it in your safe because it doesn't say Jessica Gibbs on it, right? It just says IOU. So whoever is in possession of that piece of paper could conceivably be the person who could lay claim to the money. Okay, great. So you give me $10,000 and I go off and I do whatever it is that I want to do with it, right? So Now, Jessica, what's your risk? Your risk is Dave doesn't give me $300 a year, right? He doesn't make his interest payments. And the risk is Dave doesn't give me the $10,000 back. I never see him again, right? So counterparty credit risk. Okay. Now, let's just say that I go out and I take that $10,000 and I do something with it that results in some sort of investment that allows me to pay you back the $300 a year. So 3% of $10,000 every single year. I have to come to you on December 31st, let's just say, and give you a check for $300. Year one, year two, another $300. Year three, four, $300 each year. Then year five on December 31st, I have to give you a check for $300 for your final year of interest. And I have to write you a check for $10,000 back. Great. That's it. The bond matured. The IOU matured. And you add that all up. 
you got $300 a year for four years. And then on the fifth year, you got $300 plus your $10,000. You add that all up, you got $11,500 back by lending $10,000. Okay, that's all fine and good. Very simple example. Now, let's just say that in the third year, you decide you need that money back now, right? You're going to go buy a house or something. So you come to me and you say, hey, how would you like to repay me early? And I say, no, right? Because I have plans for this money. So you go to somebody else, you go to Aaron and you say, hey, Aaron, I've got this IOU from Dave. If you give me $10,000, I'll give it to you. And for the next two years, you're going to get $300 a year plus the $10,000 back. So Aaron, you would get you would pay Jessica $10,000. She'd walk away. She would have earned $900 in interest. And then you assume the $10,000 IOU and I have to pay you $300 in interest for the next two years. So you get $10,600 total for your two years of investment. That's all fine and good, right? Terrific. Until interest rates change. And this is where people start to not understand how interest rates cause bonds to change prices. So if you use the same example where Jessica says, okay, Aaron, I need this money back before my five-year agreement with Dave. There's two years left on this at 3%. And interest rates in the market are 4%. And Aaron's going to say, well, Jessica, if I took $10,000 right now, I could go buy a bond that pays me $400 a year. And you're trying to get me to pay $10,000 a year for a bond that pays $300 a year. Because interest rates are higher, like I'm not going to pay you $10,000. I'm going to pay you something less for that. And you say, okay, fine. And you take, I'm just making this number up. You take $950, whatever it is. So because interest rates went up, the value of that IOU, that 10,000 went down. And that's where you get the saying that there's an inverse relationship between interest rates and the price of a bond. So as interest rates go up, the value of any bond that anyone is holding at that time when the interest rates go up has gone down or decreased in value if they need to sell it before maturity. So if you had held that same IOU for five years, you're going to get your $10,000 back no matter what happens to interest rates. It's only if you try to sell it before maturity are you subject to the prevailing interest rates. And if those interest rates are higher than the interest rate you're getting on the bond, no one's going to pay you the same amount of money. So it's very easy to understand how when interest rates go up, the price of a bond goes down, the value of the bond goes down. And when interest rates go down, the value of the bond that you're holding that $10,000 would have gone up because somebody would have said, well, interest rates are 1% right now, but I can buy this bond from Jessica that's paying 3%, so I'll pay more than $10,000 for that because it's worth it. And that's a very, very basic explanation of how the valuation of a bond works. So to somebody who wants to hold it all the way to maturity and just keep getting those interest rates, and hopefully Dave doesn't default on his interest rates or paying you back, terrific. It's only a problem when you try to sell it in between. And that's where people don't understand bonds. So when interest rates are really low, like they are right now, and there's not a whole lot of room for them to go down anymore, which is the only thing that's going to increase the value of a bond, and the only room that they have to go is up, we know that when interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. And that's what's causing some problems with people wanting to own bonds for the long term right now. Dave, that's really well put. You really, I'm going to kind of put a bow on that scenario we just went over. You described the two major risks to owning bonds. Now there's other risks depending on what types of bonds you're owning, but just in general, you've got credit risk, which Dave, that's the risk that whoever you borrow money from doesn't pay, whether it's a coupon payment or at maturity, they don't pay the principal back. And then 
I think people kind of get that, right? They get that people default on debt, on loans, on whatever all the time. They get that. Where it really trips people up is that last part that you talked about, which is prices adjusting to the prevailing interest rate environment, which you said, hey, if you went to Aaron and you wanted to get your money back, Aaron, I've got this bond. Will you buy it from me? The answer, of course, is yes, but here's the variable. I'll buy it from you at a price that you're probably not going to like, right? And so that goes back to that inverse relationship between interest rates and price. Price is a function of interest rates, meaning prices don't determine interest rates. It's the other way around. Interest rates determine the prices of bonds. And so that's why you can think of rates as being a pseudo, like the price of actually borrowing money. So the interest rates drive all of this. So great. What drives interest rates? Well, you turn the TV right now, and here's what everybody's talking about. Inflation, right? Inflation, inflation, inflation. And forget about inflation. Let's just talk about the expectations of inflation, right? So if everyone expects something that they're going to buy in the future to cost more than it costs today, But Jessica, you think about that $300 that you're getting from me on that IOU, right? That $300 will not change. That is your interest rate. That is your coupon rate. And that is my obligation to you through that IOU. IOU, $300 a year, that is our contractual obligation. Great. So for the first year, that $300 covers all of your costs for whatever it is that you're buying, right? Then the second year comes around and I give you $300 again. You're like, well, inflation just went up, right? The price of gas just went up. The price of food just went up. The price of healthcare just went up. Education. And I really need $350 now. So what's happening is the fixed payments that you're getting on those bonds is not enough cash to now pay for things that have gone up in price like it used to. So what is just intuitively the value of that $300 has just gone down. The value to somebody else. So if Aaron has $350 worth of goods and services that he has to pay for, and he's going to buy that bond for me, he's going to say, well, $300 isn't enough to cover it, so I'm not going to pay the full $10,000. So what ends up happening is the expectation of inflation or actual inflation will cause interest rates to go up because people are expecting more money on their investments to cover the things that they need to buy that have gone up in price. And again, when interest rates go up, that inverse relationship kicks in, the value of bonds goes down. What you just described at a more fundamental level, and this is not another way to think of it, but we need to kind of step back for a second and think about, I think people really know what inflation is, like, all right, the price of things is going up, but what causes inflation? And it's very simple, right? It's too many dollars chasing too few goods. That's right. It's supply and demand. It is economics 101. Supply and demand. There's a lot of really smart people out there, a lot of PhDs, a lot of CFAs out there, a lot of really smart people that try and slice and dice and describe the relationship between inflation and what causes it and where it's going to go and why we're seeing it in this part of the economy, but not other parts of the economy. But really, when you get down to it, you don't need a PhD to see that too many dollars chasing too few goods is going to cause inflation. That's what it is at the end of the day, supply and demand. So I want to ask about more about inflation because you watch the news and you hear about the increasing cost of milk, the increasing cost of lumber. You know, people who are trying to build their houses right now are facing potentially sky high costs for 
plywood and lumber and such. You hear about the shortage of cars because there was the lack of semiconductors and microchips, you know. So what's going on with inflation? Is this something temporary, these high costs of these goods? Or is this something, in your guys' opinion, is a long-term trend? I don't know. But the expectations are that goods and services are going to cost more money because it comes back to what Aaron was just saying about supply and demand. But now forget the supply of goods and services or the demand or the supply of them. But let's talk about the supply of money, right? Because now, and everybody's very familiar with this, there has been a lot of economic stimulus that's been injected into the system in real dollars. There's expected stimulus that people are expecting to be injected into the system. There's infrastructure packages. There's all kinds of spending that political parties are fighting for and against. And anytime there is more money in the system, that also impacts supply and demand. So now when there is an oversupply of dollar bills floating through the financial system, that gives people access to more money. And when there's more money supply chasing an unchanged amount of goods. So demand is increasing because of the supply of money with an amount of goods that hasn't changed. You're going to have more dollars chasing less goods, and that's going to drive the price up. So the monetary system and currency can cause inflation. Inflation impacts interest rates. Interest rates impact the price of bonds. That's a very loose explanation of how it all is connected. It's much more complicated than that, but if you understand that, you can follow the news and the logic that if there is a red-hot economy and people are making money and people have access to money and they're spending more, so they're buying houses, they're buying cars, they're buying boats, they're buying furniture, they're buying lumber, right? They're buying gasoline. And the supply of those goods does not keep up with the demand, the price will go up. That's inflation. And when the price goes up, it's going to drive interest rates up. And that's going to drive the price of bonds down. Yeah, I think the thing that's on everyone's mind right now, Dave, Jessica, is you keep hearing and you hear Yellen is the Treasury Secretary, you hear Powell at the Federal Reserve. People keep asking, is this a, a quote unquote transitory episode of inflation? Meaning, is this going to spike and go away or is this going to be a longer term phenomenon? Dave, you said that inflation, it is actually a lot more complicated and nuanced than we've let on here. We're just trying to paint things in broad strokes. I'll say there are things that can cause transitory inflation, right? So what's something that's going on right now? I actually texted this to the Monument group chat today. I got a text from a friend in North Carolina who went out to get gas today. The gas station he was at is all out of 87 and 89 octane gasoline because of the cyber attack that happened on one of the major US pipelines that I think goes from Houston out to the East Coast all the way up to the New York terminal, right? That's a temporary supply shock that's going to cause prices to increase temporary inflation. Of course, that hurts and you never want to see that. But I think what people are more concerned about is what if this isn't just transitory? And I'm not just talking about gasoline at this point. I'm talking about things that are a little bit more or as basic, but people have to do even more than, you know, buy gasoline, which is, hey, we got to put food on the table, right? Or, you know, I'm building a house, two by fours, lumber keeps going up. Is this ever going to go back down? So people are kind of wondering, hey, is this going to be something that we have to deal with just this year? Is this going to go away once monetary stimulus goes away? Is the Federal Reserve going to keep interest rates where they are right now out for the next several years? There's a lot of unknowns, but 
I think what you're starting to see, and Dave, you might have a different take on this, the market's starting to price in, and it's not just over on bonds, but also in stocks, but I know we're talking about bonds now. The market's starting to react to inflation not necessarily being a transitory phenomenon. I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question, which is you've heard me talk and I don't think it's any secret that I think that this is definitely not a transitory phenomenon right now. I think inflation, whether expected or actual, is on the rise. And of course, you get all this data from all of these organizations up in DC and New York, Federal Reserve, whoever measures CPI, PPI, all the inflationary measures. There's stuff that they try and capture in the data that's just not always there. And if you talk to the average person on the street, you're starting to get way, way, way more anecdotal evidence about inflation being in places where higher ups, other authorities say, no, we're not really seeing inflation or it's just transitory. Right. And people who are my age or older, I'm 24, as you all know. Okay, let me put it this way. People who remember the 70s and the 80s will remember interest rates in the early 80s being astronomical. I mean, I remember my parents having a mortgage that was 14%. And that was back in the early 80s. And the interest rates where the Fed raised interest rates, I think this was Paul Volcker, who said, we're going to raise interest rates, Reagan administration. And if we make it really expensive to borrow money, people won't borrow money and they won't be buying as much and they'll bring inflation back down. Again, very basic explanation. And, and I don't want anybody to lop my head off for that basic explanation, but just trying to put it into context of we have seen the opposite of this situation in a lot of people's lifetimes too, where interest rates were used as a way to temper inflation. But I think it kind of brings us back to, okay, great. So we just had this interesting talk about the basics of how all of these things work together. And one last thing I'll throw in there that's kind of an interesting component to this too is it can also be currency conversion rates. So if the value of the US dollar is going down against a foreign currency, that means somebody in that country can now buy more goods and services with the same euro, let's just say, than they could a month ago. So now that money's going to come in and buy goods and services too. So you can see even the price of the dollar versus the foreign exchange rates can actually add to inflation and cause so it's all working together. But so what? Right? Who cares? Well, people care, people who have investment portfolios, people who are retired, people who are looking at their portfolios and saying, I need to live out of this money. And without beating the drum of, you know, hey, have your margin of safety and your cash cushion and everything else, a lot of people do have bonds in their portfolio as an investment. And what should they be doing right now? Well, I think that we are seeing an environment where interest rates could go up it's more likely that they'll go up than it is that they'll go down, especially with the 10-year at under 2%. Okay, so there's a lot more room for something at 2% to go to 10% than there is for 10% to go to 0%, right? Just not a lot of room left. So if you're an investor and you have bonds in your portfolio, you should be looking at that and saying to yourself, okay, if I hold the individual securities, if I hold that piece of paper that's an IOU, and I believe in the counterparty risk being very low and somebody, Dave's going to pay Jessica back, then the smartest thing to do is do nothing. Just wait until it matures and get your $10,000 back. That way you don't have to worry about interest rates going up or down because the value of that piece of paper, the amount of money that you're going to get back in that loan will not change. You're going to get that $10,000 so long as I'm liquid enough and not bankrupt. Okay. But a lot of people don't own individual bonds. They own either mutual funds or they own the ETFs. And that's got a different supply and demand dynamic. 
Yeah. So talk about the difference between what is a traditional bond, that was the example that you gave at the very beginning, versus a bond fund or a bond ETF. Yeah. So very similar or quite similar to how it works in the world of stocks, right? I think people get what a single stock is an individual stock. You own Apple, you own Coke, you own Pepsi. You can actually own that stock, right? And there's vehicles that you can buy, whether an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, or a mutual fund that go and pool those assets on your behalf, and you can buy those either from the issuer in the case of a mutual fund or on the secondary market in the case of an ETF. We get that. Well, the same thing applies over in bonds. You can actually go out and you can buy individual QCIPT, and that's a fancy term, meaning it's got a, an individual- Like a serial number. Like a serial number, right. An individual identifier on the bond. You can buy that from the US Treasury. You can go buy that from a company during a, you know, a bond auction, or more typically people buy these in the secondary market, right? From dealers, from brokers and dealers. Dave, to your point, what people typically do if they've got enough capital, and I'll get to why having enough money to do this here in a little bit, but if you've got enough money where you've got the means, people can go out and actually buy individual bonds and create what we call bond ladders. So all a bond ladder is, is you're buying a series of individual bonds that are staggered out in their maturities. Let's just call a five-year bond ladder with five bonds. So you buy a bond that has a one-year maturity, you buy a bond that has a two-year maturity, so on and so forth. And what ends up happening is when the bond with the one-year maturity comes due, in a year's time, well, guess what? You're going to go out and you're going to reinvest that. So you're going to reinvest that in a five-year maturity bond. The bond that was previously at two years is now at one year and so on and so forth. So what you're doing is you're recycling your money as these bonds come due and- At the prevailing interest rate. At the prevailing interest rate. So Dave, to your point, if you go and buy an individual bond and hold it until maturity, absent any type of- credit event, meaning the issuer doesn't pay you your contractual interest payment or pay you your principal at maturity, you're going to get all your money back. So what's the risk of doing that? Well, I think we've covered it a little bit. If you're using that cash to go out and buy things, you've got some inflationary risk there, right? Where if you're promised $500 worth of coupon payments and inflation goes up, you might not be able to buy $500 worth of goods. And so you'll have eroded purchasing power from those coupon payments. But what that bond ladder is trying to do is it's trying to mitigate that risk and spread out the risk that inflation will erode your coupon and principal payments and just doing it in a smart way so you can eventually capture higher interest rates. That's a bond ladder. Right. And then what you're assuming there is, so let's just say that I went out right now and I bought a U.S. government-issued 10-year treasury bond yielding 1.6%, which is about where it's yielding right now. That means that I have to be okay with getting 1.6% for the next 10 years. Right. So when you think about it in that terms, Jessica, our example of the IOU, instead of getting $300, you're getting $160 a year. And you've got to ask yourself, in 10 years or in nine years, are you going to be okay with still only getting $160 a year if you think that interest rates are going to go up and you're going to have to wait 10 years until you can reinvest that $10,000 at the prevailing interest rates? So you say, okay, well, maybe rates don't move around that much. But you know, I'll remind everybody that back in the summer of 2020, 
the 10-year was yielding somewhere between 50 basis points or one half of 1%, okay, was yielding somewhere between one half of 1% and 60 basis points, which is basically six-tenths of 1%. So a year ago, the 10-year treasury was giving you 1% less than what it's giving you now. Or in the case with Jessica, instead of $160, it was giving you $60. So just in the course of six months, you've seen the yield move a lot. Imagine if somebody bought that 10-year treasury back in April of 2020, and they were only going to get $60 a month for the next 10 years. They'd be looking at themselves and saying, like, that's stupid. I should sell this thing. And when they go to sell it, no one's going to pay that much for something that's yielding one half of 1% when they can buy something at 1.6%. That's where bond investing has to be understood. And then as it relates to the mutual funds, Jessica, which you were asking about before, here's what investors need to understand about mutual funds. Mutual fund manager is going to collect a whole bunch of cash from all the investors, and they're going to go out and they're going to buy bonds. And the bonds are what they are. They're just a whole filing cabinet full of IOUs. Now, it would be great if every single investor in the world was willing to hold to maturity so that that filing cabinet could just be The IOUs can be given back and they get their money, assuming that they're investing in credit-worthy investors. But that's not what happens in real life. People need their money back. So when those bond managers are forced to sell the IOUs that are in that filing cabinet out in the public market, and they start pulling out those 10-year treasury bonds that people were buying for the portfolios back in August of 2020, they're not getting a lot. They're probably getting half the money for those things. And so a mutual fund investor isn't afforded the luxury of price stability of that $10,000, Jessica, with your IOU, right? You will only worry about me paying you back. That's all you worry about and making the interest payments. A bond invest, if you had put that money into a bond mutual fund and somebody comes in and they need their money back, the value of your investment in your portfolio will go down because they are forced to liquidate bonds before they mature in a bond mutual fund. And so there's some volatility of the value of your bond portfolio or the NAV of a mutual fund. That is a bond mutual fund, and that's a completely different psychological risk that people need to assume. And then remember, if you, again, expect that interest rates go up, it's mathematically probable that the value of that mutual fund will go down. So that's where things need to be understood by investors as it relates to Aaron's idea of going out and buying the Q-SIPs, which is great, the serial numbers, the individual bonds. Yeah, Dave, you bring up a good point. And I'll say what you just described with mutual funds is somewhat comparable, but it's not lockstep over on the exchange traded fund side. There are some vagaries and nuances there, but that thinking is prevails as well. But you really nailed it where the behavior of other investors can affect your performance when you're in a mutual fund, right? So if you go out and buy those serial number bonds, again, absent a credit event, you know for certain, actually to the day, when you're going to receive your coupon payments. And that's actually what a lot of investors like about these bond ladders. And I know I said I'd come back to this on why it takes a certain amount of money to do this. Bonds are typically you know, issued in larger denominations. You can't go out and buy $25 worth of an AT&T bond. If you want to go out and actually buy a serial number bond, you typically have to buy it in denominations of $1,000. And if we're being honest here, to get really good pricing and to go out and do this in some scale, you really need to be buying bonds at, I'd say, bare minimum of $10,000 per, right? And so if you believe the adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket, want to achieve some type of some level of diversification, and you want to get a critical mass of owning these bonds, 
it's not hard to imagine the amount of money that you would need if you want to have 50 different issuers at $10,000 a piece in an issuer. So you can see that the tally adds up really quick. Yeah, it does. So we've been, you know, talking really in the weeds about bonds and I want to- It's so much fun though. So much fun. I know. I'm tell- I can tell <laughs> the two of you are really into this. <laughs> We're going to keep talking after this whole thing's over. Aaron, I'll call you later. <laughs> I'm going to take us out, you know, a little bit, zoom out a little bit. I want to talk about the role of bonds in portfolio strategy, because I think from a financial planner perspective, you know, people talked about bonds as a critical component of portfolio, but particularly in retirement, it used to be, oh, you would have that regular income that would fund your lifestyle. And, you know, from what you guys described earlier, it doesn't really feel like you can count on that, you know, that income from bonds the way you used to be able to. So I think the basic question I think I'm trying to ask is like, is it still important to own bonds? What should the role of bonds be in your portfolio strategy, either before retirement or after when you're actually retired? Jessica, I feel like you've pulled us out of the quicksand to our ankles, but you just let go of us and we're going back down. Here we go. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the question, I'm going to rephrase this a little bit, is why, given all we've discussed and headwinds facing the bond market, and it seems like the likely path of interest rates is up, which we've discussed that when rates go up, prices reset and prices go down, et cetera. So why would anyone in their right mind, anyone add an asset that has a high probability of going down in any given year, right? Like, why would you add something that's going to be, in essence, a loser to your portfolio? Ooh, ooh, professor, I know, I know. All right, we got a brown noser in the front row. (laughs) Mr. Armstrong? Because some people really need and want to have the consistent and predictable cash flow that comes out of a bond, regardless of what's happening to its price before maturity. Some people. Actually, that is the number one reason for, again, some people. And I'd say, Dave, if I'm thinking about various portfolios I've seen, clients I've worked with over the years, that is especially true for clients who own the serial number bonds, who own those bond ladders, that they know they can go into their calendar And they, again, absent a credit event, can program into their calendar saying, I am going to get $500 every six months on, you know, this day of the month. There's your predictability of cash flow. And, you know, we talked about if you go in and look at your account on the basis, you know, in between those payments, you're going to see the value of that bond fluctuate up and down. But people get, as long as this issuer doesn't default, I'm going to get this cash flow. Right. Let's just use a, a real extreme example. And I'm going to caveat this by saying this is not investment advice. Okay. But somebody takes $10 million and they say, you know what? I added up all my annual expenses. And for the past five years, they have been about $125,000 a year. So that's just what I'm spending. I'm retired. That's it. Right. So I'm going to take $10 million. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a 10 year treasury bond right now at 1.6%. And I'm going to get essentially a pension from the US government that will be $160,000 a year for the next 10 years guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government which so far okay why wouldn't i just go out and take my 10 million dollars and buy one bond right now because i know that it will cover the cost and then the answer to that is comes back to ravages of inflation right because your cost of living may be 
$125,000 a year now, but who knows what it's going to be in year eight. I mean, I think I'm going to drive up the street right now. Gas is going to be a dollar higher than it was this morning. So that's where things get tricky, right? Yeah, that's definitely, I'd say, predictability of cash flow in the face of the possibility of having eroded purchasing power, right? We just covered that. Jessica, I'd say probably the reason that the vast majority of investors would add something like bonds, and I'm using bonds homogeneously here, right? I am totally tracking what you're saying as far as owning individual bonds and you have that regular interest payment, coupon payment. But I think a lot of investors probably own more bond ETFs, you know? So does that really track if you're owning bond ETFs as opposed to actual physical bonds? Yeah. So that's going to be different, of course, right? If you go buy some type of a bond ETF, it's going to try and track an index, which as we know, it's impossible to actually invest directly in an index. But what these bond ETF issuers are going to go do is they're going to try their best to replicate that index. But here's the kicker on this. We talked about the size of the bond market. It is really big, not only from a notional standpoint, $128 trillion, if in fact that is the total, right? I'm talking about just the sheer number of issuers and issues. So AT&T, let's use them as an example. I don't have their fixed income page up right now. If Dave would show out some money for Bloomberg, we could try this out right now, but we're being a penny pinch. We're close. We're close. I'll bet you we get a couple more clients from this podcast and I'll get you, I'll get you, I'll get you the Bloomberg <laughs> But this will underlie the point. AT&T has one ticker symbol, right, for stocks. It's T. T is in Tom. There's one stock for AT&T. AT&T on the bond side might have anywhere up to a dozen different bond issues outstanding at any given time. That is a ton. And you go in and look at some of these other financial institutions in particular, banks, they can have you know, dozens and dozens of different individual bond issues outstanding at any given time. And so it's very easy to see how some of these, these indices can get really hard to actually build and track. And something else that is difficult for these ETF issuers and providers is a lot of these bonds, they are very thinly traded. So a mutual fund might have a hard time actually going out and sourcing and buying the exact bond they want. Well, for an exchange traded fund, for an ETF, that's really hard too. So what these ETF providers try and do is they do their best. They use a technique called sampling where they'll, let's say the index they're trying to replicate has a thousand different issues in it. Well, they're going to do their best to create the parameters and how that index behaves, but they might only be able to go out and buy something like 500 different bonds. Now, it might be more than that. It might be less than that. The point is they can't go buy every single bond in that index, right? And so that's what's a little difficult about actually constructing an ETF. And that's what you're getting as, a, as an ETF investor as well, is you're not getting necessarily the exact index. So there's individual bonds within that ETF, but there could be hundreds, there could be thousands, and you don't know at any given day you know, what's going to get called away, what's going to mature. You don't have that transparency. I think it would be a great episode to have you come back on, Aaron, and, and we could probably talk about ETFs for a whole podcast episode. And uh, we're kind of reaching the end here. So I wanted to just take us to the conclusion, which is back to Jessica's question, which is, you know, why do people own bonds? And I think one of the big, in addition to that consistency of cash flow is perceived safety. Bonds, they're perceived as being a safe investment. 
right? As long as Dave pays Jessica the $300 a year, and as long as Dave pays Jessica back $10,000 at the end, it's considered a safe investment. I think right now people need to assess how they perceive safety in their portfolio. And if you perceive safety in your portfolio as consistent cash flows, and I don't care what the value of my bond index goes between now and maturity, that's one way to look at it and say bonds are relatively safe. If you are looking at it and saying, well, my perception of risk is the value of my portfolio going up and down, and I don't know when I'm going to need that money in the future. I may need it tomorrow. Like Jessica, with our example of the five years, you may need that money back in three then maybe bonds aren't providing in a low interest rate environment with increasing inflation and the expectations of interest rates going up. Everybody should take a look at what their definition of perceived safety is and ask themselves if their current investment allocation to bonds is truly appropriate for their risk appetite right now. And maybe that's just a great place to end it because There's no advice to give everybody other than just take a look at it and ask yourself these questions like, you know, when do I need this money? And, you know, Aaron, I'm I'm gonna give you the final word on the bonds here. But yeah, that that's kind of the way I see it is everybody should just take a look at it and assess it from their own personal perspective and do some financial planning, do some cash flow planning, take a look at what you need, when you need it, incorporate cash in there because cash really isn't paying that much less than a bond anyway. And kind of look at it from the standpoint of liquidity too. So that's my final statement on the bonds. Yeah, well put, Dave. Apologies to the listeners for for dancing around this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to restate the question. Why would you willingly add something to a portfolio that is going to be, quote unquote, a loser in your portfolio for the foreseeable future? Here's the answer. It's so you don't, and I'm going to be a little rude here. It's so you don't puke your portfolio at the absolute worst time is why. If you buy stocks, if you buy indices, that might seem safe and diversified, and you are diversified, but You're going to get the return of the index. You're going to get the return of stocks. But guess what you're also going to get with it? You're going to get the downside. You're going to get the volatility. You're going to get what we call drawdowns. And the goal of adding bonds to a portfolio of stocks is so you dilute that risk of a drawdown. Last year during COVID from peak to trough, the S&P went down close to 40%. Bonds sold off a little bit during that time period too. There's no doubt about it. But if you held a slice, a sliver of bonds, and I don't care what your allocation, if you held a meaningful portion of bonds with your stocks, guess what? You weren't down 40%. You were down somewhat less than that. And what that's going to do, it's going to allow you, A, to ride out the storm. It's going to allow you to sleep better at night. And then going back to my point, it's so you don't puke your portfolio at the absolute worst time, go to cash, and then miss out on the eventual run-up. It's as simple as that. Right. Because a real-life example of that was, let's, again, I'll go back to the 10-year treasury, but you know, back in the fall of 2018, the 10-year treasury was trading around 3.25%, roughly. I mean, I'm just guessing there. It's 3.2, 3.3% in the fall of 2018. And if everybody remembers the inverse relationship, when interest rates go down, the price of bonds go up, and you had that 10-year treasury and it still had three years left on it, and you fast forward to August of 2020 when it was yielding one half of 1%, so there was a two and a half percentage point loss in, in in yield, that means that that 10-year went up in value. So those people actually did experience an increase in their portfolio at a time when the stocks were decreasing. But when interest rates are really low, there's just not a lot of room to go. You just need to look at it from that perspective. Absolutely. So we've covered a lot today. 
We could go on for hours. Upon you want to just do it? I, you want to just book another hour? Let's just let's do it. Let's just keep hour. going. No, no. No. Okay, <laughs> Maybe we do a Bond episode part two or something like that because we seriously could go on for a long time here. Everyone, please go into Apple iTunes and give Jessica a five-star review, not Aaron and Dave, and give <laughs> Jessica a great review in the comments section. And in all seriousness, if you made it this far, we really would appreciate it if you just took the minute to do three things for us that really helped the visibility of the podcast. It's to go in and just, if you think it rates a five-star review, hit five stars, just one thumb swipe, you get it there, write a sentence or two about how great Jessica is, and just leave Aaron and I out of it. And subscribe. If you do those three things, it's like the biggest form of podcast currency we could ask for. So that would be very helpful. And Jessica, I'm going to let you wrap the whole thing up. And uh, Well, I have one last question for you guys. So I think you guys kept talking about, you're like, okay, this is the broad strokes. This is not the detail about bonds. If someone really did want to do a deep dive into bonds and learning about bonds, do you guys have any resources that you personally really like and you'd recommend to a listener? Yeah, there's actually a phenomenal resource, and it's not from a bond guy. It's from a stock guy. His name is Jared Dillian, and if you all are on Twitter, his handle is at Daily Dirtnap. Jared used to be head of the ETF trading desk at Lehman Brothers in the mid-2000s, has his own radio show now. He syndicated and is a, a really great Twitter follow. He has his own website, I believe it's called Jared Dillian Money. And if you want to shout of a few dollars and actually buy a really good resource going bottoms up, you want to learn about fixed income from the start, Jared has a series called the Jared Dillian Bond Masterclass. I'll be honest, we bought it a while back and I learned something new in there as well. It's for all readers, all education levels, whether you're brand new to bonds whether you're a bond trader or you're anyone in between, I think that anyone that goes in and reads that, you'll glean something. So that's a fantastic resource right there. Yeah, I agree. His masterclass is really great. I think there's three modules in it. Each one, let's just call it 50 pages. If you like the example that Jessica and Aaron and I were using going back and forth about the $10,000 and the IOU, the entire masterclass is kind of like that. It's just very understandable and followable. That in the Daily Dirt Nap is one of my favorite daily reads, which is fantastic. So, Aaron, I'm glad you got a chance to remind everybody to go check that out because I found it very valuable as well. They should just use it as the course curriculum for the CFA. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. Yeah, really thanks, Aaron. Really appreciated this deep dive. And Aaron, I'll call you right back and we'll talk about this for another hour. So, <laughs> great. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you on the next episode. Sounds good. Sounds good.